Welcome to the System is Broken podcast. I am Randy Thompson. And I am Lindsay Barrow. Why are we qualified to do this podcast? We're not. (laughs) End of podcast. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Goodbye. So you came up with this idea. I think you should be properly credited as coming up with the idea for this podcast. I've always been like, how can we do this system better? Even when it comes to doing work around the Ruby, of just like, okay, this, what's the best way to improve whatever we're doing? And with the pandemic, it was the same thing where I was like, I can't sit here, come back and do auditions like we've been on doing auditions. And it struck me how angry I was about it, just being so fed up. Why are we still playing this game? Why are we still treating each other so poorly after all of this? A lot of people don't want to be a part of that system. They want it to stop. But when we keep just like agreeing to it in small ways, we are perpetuating the system forward. So yeah, I think this was, okay, well, how can we stop it? This is the best I could do. So hopefully it works. (laughs) (laughs) The system is broken. The podcast. (laughs) Fixed. Done. Season two, the system is fixed. (laughs) I think it's interesting because I do think with the pandemic, a lot of industries will have to take a step back and look at their existing policies. I have a friend at a major company who that does streaming entertainment, and they've basically advised their employees don't plan on coming back to the office for at least the next year. And, you know, they were expanding pretty significantly around the world with facilities that they may never need, you know, they may realize that they don't need anymore. So I'm very interested in our own industry and our own experience, those kind of areas that we're able to kind of take a step back, just because we're going to have some separation from it. And also the things that we've already had to do, you know, we've already had to, to pivot in a lot of ways and make changes to our, the, the ways we, we were doing business before. And I, I see that as having a trickle down effect to a lot of different areas of, of this industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk to Jeff Thompson, who is a performer at the Ruby LA and also is an actor in Los Angeles. Jeff has been working in the industry for quite a long time and has found some issues with the cost of classes, specifically um, how it's prohibitive for BIPOC folks to get involved with improv and different comedy institutions um, because they are so expensive and it's hard to get on stage without going through those programs. Great. Our expert joining us will be Nick Armstrong, and Nick is an improv theater owner. So we will get both sides of the story there. Okay, so our guest today is Jeff Thompson. Jeff is a multi-multi-hyphenate. He is an actor, a writer, a magician, a professor, and a tax professional from Los Angeles, not just in Los Angeles, but from here. Jeff is a teacher. He performs improv at Westside Comedy Theater. He produces short films. He has a production company, Great Hair Productions. And he is also the operations manager of the Ruby LA, a comedy theater and school. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Hey, y'all. Jeff, you are involved in a lot of comedy schools and places. So you got a lot of 
you got a lot of know-how. I have seen uh, a lot from various perspectives. So all the frustrations that you can think that are a part of being in the entertainment industry, I've seen them, but also the joys too, so. Great, why are you, why did you decide to do entertainment industry? I mean, you have all these other things. Why, why jump into acting? Uh, so I auditioned for a play when I was in like high school and I didn't get in, weirdly enough, a freshman in high school auditioning for a play didn't get in their first time auditioning for anything. And uh, I did the normal healthy thing where I marched to the director and I said, why didn't I get in? I didn't. <laughs> I was really late on puberty. Uh, and then he's like, well, you know, we don't know you very well. Or, you know, not everybody gets in their first time. Uh, I was like, but I'm special. But he was like, well, but we're doing improv. If you've seen Whose Line Is It Anyway, uh, we're doing a little something like that. And it was a comedy sports high school league. And then I was like, oh, this improv thing is fun. Then later I was like, can I do this? acting thing professionally and I haven't yet but apparently some people can do that what is professional anyway what's I don't know. professional yeah you were in a commercial I know at least one yeah so. I was in two but like very few people saw them so it's like uh that thing of I mean yeah so I'm a working actor but it's mm -hmm. not I'm not a recognized working actor I'm still like top 100,000 mm -hmm. on IMDb I don't know what my ranking is oh don't wow that's actually pretty good ranking good. Jeff <laughs> Oh, wait. <laughs> yes. It might be 200,000 for me. He's like, I'm somewhere between Tom Holland and Tom Hardy. Yeah. Is that another Tom? <laughs> yeah. The two Toms. Oh, my star meter is 339,658. I'm so sorry. But yeah, I auditioned for some plays and then I went to college and I did some plays there independently and did a lot of improv. And then I graduated college and I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do more of that. And then I did all of it. I was planning on writing a dissertation using improv as a framework for therapy. And then I didn't because I was like, eh, I'll do it later. And, and then it never happened. So, well, yet you still can. Yeah. Yeah. You're young. Yeah. You have lots of time. Earlier when you said that you 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 had a comedy sports high school league, mm -hmm. I thought you were going to say you were at, went to a comedy sports high school. I'm writing that pilot right now. Comedy sports high school. <laughs> um, oh, no. Classes by oh. me. <laughs> Is that your tagline? Oh, actors. I'm writing it right now. That's I can awesome. work up it. <laughs> okay, so, okay. How long have you been involved with Westside? I'm going to just throw it a guess and say like seven years. Uh, that okay, feels about right to me. Uh, I was kind of like on the fringe for a while. And then I kind of just, you know how it is sometimes with theaters where you just end up being a part of it. And then people I start know like, that. recognizing me. And then I was just like, oh, wait, how am I a celebrity? I'm just, I'm just me, little old Jeff. It feels like Jeff's journey to be an actor is actually just based on recognition. <laughs> yeah, people are just like, we've seen you before. We like you. Which is essentially what it is. Yeah, I think that's most people's journey of being yeah. an actor, isn't it? Okay, so you are also involved with the Ruby, mm -hmm. and you said you were the operations director. Mm -hmm. You're also on the board, Jack Thompson. You're also on the board of the Ruby. Treasurer. You are. It's a real position. Legally. Legally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> For the California Secretary Secretary of State who's listening. <laughs> 
for the one. So how did you get involved with the Ruby? So it was in like the big reshuffle where uh, the team started like opening up to new people and the team Money Pit decided that they wanted some new players on their sketch team. Money Pit, is, well, everybody knows what Money Pit is. Uh, one of the top 100,000 <laughs> sketch teams in LA. Easily. Yeah, easily. I um, like submitted a packet. You know that thing where you submit and you're just like, is everything that I've ever wrote just terrible? Like, am I just bad at writing? <laughs> uh, but I wasn't. Yeah. yeah. So I was doing accounting then. I was like, yeah, if you guys need any help, I'm happy to help out. And I just started helping out. And now I'm on the board of directors. <laughs> Yeah, it was that statement that <laughs> just pushed you off of that slippery slope. Yeah, we were I'm... like, hey, this guy volunteered. Get him over here. Yeah. <laughs> Here's your title and the keys. I... <laughs> Why was it so easy? We're great podcast hosts. We're not great business owners. <laughs> <laughs> So you have a production company. Mm -hmm. What is your dream in LA? Like what would be your, oh, okay, I'm done doing tax prep. I'm done doing being a professor. What would that look like? What would you be doing? I mean, I feel like I want to do everything because everything is fun. I have a really nice balance right now. I mean, I haven't been doing much acting because of pandemic and whenever somebody's like, you want to act on this set? I'm like, if Batman can get COVID-19, then I can get COVID. Like The Rock and Batman got COVID-19. This is not the time to play around with COVID-19. If the rock can, like, the, the, the Tom, uh, uh, that I'm like, the Tom that everybody loves. Thanks. Hey. Yeah, thank you. He got it. You like, know who doesn't love him? QAnon. Oh, from yeah. We'll keep going. <laughs> By the way, um, shout out to my quick uh, QAnon podcast. Uh, over 3 million followers right now. Dang, that's um, in the top 100,000 QAnon podcasts in Los Angeles. It's, <laughs> it's, top, it's, it's doing pretty well. So, oh, a rank just dropped. Yeah, I, like, I've had this ability to, like, kind of balance everything. And so, in a perfect year, like, maybe I write a script and, like, act in a few things. Or uh, I have, like, a few years of like working on like a show that I really love and like teaching occasionally on the side. The great thing about this pandemic, that's a weird sentence to say, is realizing how many things can be done online, which gives you a lot of flexibility. So yeah, I just want to like make good stuff that people like and, you know, make people feel like, oh, that brought me out of whatever funk I was feeling for a while. But also I learned something along the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's the professor in you. Yeah, Always I... got to teach a lesson. What do you think is your most favorite project that you've ever worked on? <laughs> oh boy. One short film that I worked, I've worked on a bunch and all that I love, but uh, one I wrote, it was a film called Because We Can, which I think you can watch on Amazon Prime. And it was fun because it was a set with like a whole bunch of friends. And I had like a very crazy pre-production. Things were just falling apart left and right. But the day of the shoot, nothing went wrong. The only thing that went wrong was like we ran out of water early, which is on a shoot, if like that's your only problem. So everybody was there on time. Everybody knew their lines. It was just a fun 10 hour day. We got everything we needed and people like watch that film and they laugh at it. And that's what I want. But they also like walk away having learned something. Oh God, great. So 
we're here to talk to you today about, well, the system is broken, which is the name of the podcast, means that there's something that you've encountered by working as an actor, working in, in the system that you think could be better. So you've, you've been an actor for a long time, since you were in high school, since you went to the comedy sports high school. <laughs> this <laughs> and, class is funny. Uh, still workshopping that log line. What do you think is the hardest part or what do you think is one of the worst things that you've encountered for being an actor in Los Angeles? So no one should ever have to choose like, should I take this class or should I eat this month? It is so expensive to try to pursue acting and I understand why it is, but I'm still very frustrated by it because having run a theater school, I'm like, well, if we give classes away for free, we can't pay teachers who are also working actors uh, and trying to, you know, pay bills. So when you look at like a large institution that seems to be doing well and they can't figure out how to make classes affordable but also pay bills, then you go like, well, what, how do we make this work? You know, how do we provide value? Yeah, it's just, it's just extremely expensive. I think for a lot of our if listener, they will have a <laughs> they will have a, a background in acting. But just on the off chance that we have somebody who is tuning in and has a general idea of what it is to be an actor, but not really a specifics, let's run down like just quickly if we can a, an average working actor. So somebody kind of at your level, hypothetically, doesn't have to be you, but an average working actor, the things in a given month that they would be spending money on just in pursuit of the career basic yeah let's just say you're taking a run-of-the-mill acting class that's gonna be four hundred dollars ish give or take a month right yeah uh then you have whatever you're paying for uh monthly like casting services that's 25 if you pay somebody for a self-tape or two you know add 50 ish dollars depending on how long of a session let's see other monthly expenses you might have you know put like some expensive uh, equipment uh, on a credit card maybe you were trying to do a vo setup right now anyway i would say mm-hmm. most working actors do need access to some basic at home filming and recording equipment to be able to do any auditions right yeah if it's just like a simple video and you're using your camera and you just get like a tripod but you get like the backdrop as well as like some nice lights you're looking at like a couple hundred dollars ish maybe you're on a team and you're paying uh, a fee to a coach so let's just say you're paying on average like 40 a month so we're already at like the 600 range and i'm sure there are lots of like very specific like uh headshots right yeah uh ranging from 400 to 700 dollars which i've started to you know drink the kool-aid where i'm like oh yeah i guess my face does look a little different than it did two years Years ago, I guess I do need new headshots, but they're expensive, and then you have to get them touched up, uh, and then you have to upload them to casting sites, which costs additional money depending on which one you're uploading it to. So very quickly, you can see yourself spending. Like I do a lot of uh, tax returns for actors, and I just see people spending on average like three to four thousand dollars a year uh like on the low end 
once you get booked on a job and if you get into the union, then you have to start paying union fees. Mm-hmm. Um, Commissions to your agents and managers and lawyers, and, depending. Yeah. Right. So, um, so say you're booked on a TV show, um, congrats, and you booked a co-star. Now uh, you have to pay 10% to your agent, mm-hmm. 10% to your manager, maybe. Mm-hmm. If, and sometimes they're more. My previous manager was 15. So now yeah. 25% of your paycheck is going. That's a quarter of your paycheck is gone, given to the people who've helped you, but still like that's- Pre-tax, by yeah, the way. Pre-tax. And and yeah, you can, you know, you could spend a good chunk of money that way. Not to mention, yeah, then SAG fees, all that stuff. So it gets to be pretty expensive. And I know that you were kind of talking about um, when we, we, you know, we approached you about this, you had said the cost of comedy classes, which is very funny because mm-hmm. you run a comedy institution and you're involved with several of them. So uh, the irony is not lost, you know, the irony is yeah. not lost on us. <laughs> um, one thing that you said, so you take acting classes and, and comedy classes, I would say, are in that improv, mm-hmm. uh, sketch writing, storytelling, pilot writing. These are all classes that we offer on the site right now. You can check out. <laughs> um, but those classes, they're expensive. And why do you take them? Why take an improv class? Why take a sketch class? At, and, you know, to get on a team to be seen is the goal that everyone's kind of working towards. You get seen by casting directors, you get seen by agents, then you get rep, then you get jobs and all of that is just paying into inevitably you'll, you know, get on a show or get be making enough money that you can actually live as an actor. Yeah. But like, but like, you know, why is it important to take a comedy class? And I think that's a really good question or an acting class. And the, so real quick, like side tangent, a lot of people do have that like feeling of like, what's the point of me doing this? Uh, it's not like I'll ever book a job from doing an improv show. I've actually booked a job from doing an improv show. Uh, I once got an email from somebody who was like, hey, so your improv show, uh, we're doing this like thing. Uh, and it was one of the cool, it was like an art and Installation. I can't talk too much about it because of uh, non-disclosure agreements. Uh, I was naked the entire time. It was one of those like rich billionaire parties. <laughs> Is this real? The I did book a job. Uh, it wasn't a rich billionaire party. But if there are any rich billionaires who are listening to this podcast and will hire me, uh, I'm SAG. I've trained at all the improv schools. <laughs> Gotta be... Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> just feel like if you if you say that you were naked in the show, you want to be very specific when you mention your SAG-AFTRA is your union. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I want people to know that I'm a trained naked actor. You get that bump for nudity, so that's really important. Um, that's true. The, the reason for the classes and the reason for getting on teams is to hone your skills and sharpen them. Like, if I hadn't taken the amount of classes that I had, I'm... Like I was, I'm so naturally talented and gifted. Uh, everyone looked at me as a baby and said, this boy will be a comedy writer. Uh, <laughs> Not uh, an actor. <laughs> yeah, it was, I got pigeonholed very early. Uh, they're like, he doesn't you have, have a the face for it. comedy writing. Ah! <laughs> got you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I'm much funnier because I got to uh, the opportunity to work things out and practice and practice and practice. Yeah. And being on a sketch team, it forces you to write or being on an improv team, it forces you to like really know what it's like to collaborate with other people. Like every skill that I've learned has made me a better performer, uh, but it's still very expensive.
expensive and I just cover my ears sometimes and I go I'm writing this off at the end of the year but <laughs> there have been years where I've like my agents been like hey are you taking classes and I'm like I will take classes as soon as I get out of thousand dollars of credit card debt because at this point like things are a little bit scary but it's also that thing of like maybe if I took another class I'd book more jobs I don't know right it's a it's an investment and you know it, it is a business we don't think of ourselves as uh like many businesses which mm-hmm. if you're in LA uh you will be surprised when the city of Los Angeles is like hey you were a business this year you owe us money uh so but like we are a business and every business has startup uh like a startup investment that's required but it's a lot it's still a lot you know yeah i think it's interesting talking about honing your skills with classes and and that experience because a lot of times i think what people may not think about for an actor who is spending, you know, even a moderately successful actor who's booking a couple co-stars a year, who's, you know, maybe shooting a couple commercials a year, but isn't a series regular on a television show, they, the, the days spent working on your craft or the days spent actually, you know, performing for pay are few and far between, you know, that might be 20 days out of the year, if you're doing pretty well, you know, as a as a, you know, television commercial actor. So I think for for what I've experienced is it is difficult to continually hone your craft if you are just professionally interviewing all the time, right? So we're doing these auditions that some of them, you know, might require a lot of preparation, they might require a deep dive into to, uh, text work into script analysis and that type of thing. And some of them are literally just say this product name three times while you're dancing. And so I I think that part of that too is just that if you could learn by doing, if you were working all the time, but I think for a lot of us who there may be months, you know, a, a, lot, a long stretch of time where you're not working, developing those skills on your own in isolation is, is pretty difficult. Um, yeah. Obviously, you can create your own work. Obviously, you can self-produce. There's There are tons of avenues to do that. But I think for a lot of people, um, classes, doing improv performances, those type of things are the, the only avenue or one of the only avenues to really like flexing that muscle constantly or working that muscle. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I like a lot of people do the thing, especially starting out where they go, oh, well, once I get on set, uh, like when somebody puts me on set, I'll be able to show what I can do. And just quick advice, being on set and not knowing what you're doing is the worst feeling ever. (laughs) Especially when there are 30 people waiting for you to say product name and dance. And uh, the director yells like, cut and just like looks at you and says, just so you know, you're supposed to move to the left let's do that again uh you just go oh no all of that if i there are the hundreds of thousands of dollars just waiting for me to do this one thing and if i mess it up everybody stays here late and they look at you and then they go ah oh, that guy should have just been a comedy writer no you're playing <laughs> So yeah, I think that's important. It is very, it's high pressure to go into an audition. And the way I think about it, like you had said, Randy, is you're going in for an interview. Basically, you're interviewing all the time, right? So that's a high pressure situation. And yeah, you have to move two inches to the left, turn the product like 30 centimeters, make sure it's kind of tilted on camera and say, mm, mm, tasty fun. You know, the name of that product, tasty fun. 
<laughs> not a sponsor. Can get right <laughs> but, but I think that's a great point. A lot of people think about comedy classes as, oh, I need to, like I said, I need to take this class when I get on stage and someone sees me, then they'll hire me, blah, blah, blah. But I don't, I think it's way more, um, it's better for your mental health to think of it as, no, I need to get on stage so I'm practicing my craft because I love doing this and this is a way for me to practice my craft and not like, okay, if I don't do this show right with this person sitting in the audience, I'm never going to get discovered. That's going to be the end of my career. Um, and that's not a that's not a good mental place to be in. Sure. How many it comedy is... classes do you... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Randy. No, no. I was just going to say, too, just, just to kind of throw it out there, too, even if it's a small component of it, there is a benefit to the networking aspect of, of the other people that you would meet in those classes. And also in those shows, like Jeff, you were saying, you booked a show you booked work from an improv show. There's a concept that I'm a thousand percent stealing and I wish I could credit the person who told it to me, but I don't remember. But when I first moved to LA, there was this concept that was introduced to me of just kind of like sending ships out and seeing what comes back. And so it's like as many avenues as you possibly can to send out opportunities for work to come back to you, for networking opportunities, for whatever it is. And so it's like, you know, obviously there are a million of those and that's part of what we're discussing today. There's this expectation that you just should do everything. You should take a voiceover class, you should take comedy, you should take improv, all this. But I, I just wanted to make sure that we include that as, as a potential benefit um, and part of the pressure to, to spend that money on taking comedy classes is, you know, not only developing your craft, but there is a small chance that you meet somebody that's going to be a collaborator or um, a casting director does scout your team and wants to bring you in for something. Yeah, and I think that might be part of the issue in like how that's communicated because I know a lot of schools are like, here, look at our alumni. They took classes here and now they're famous. And a lot of different like showcases and things like that. And not to say that there's anything wrong with them because sometimes when there's a showcase, industry comes and then sometimes you get signed from that and that leads to them auditioning for something. But there are all these like middle steps that we don't often talk about. Like a lot of people don't know what a general is. Uh, a lot of people don't know that people still do generals. Uh, I had my first for the first time and I was like, oh, this, oh, I did a general. That's what that is. Uh, <laughs> And also, um, but like building, yeah, that building of the network is the important thing because yes, like the thing that I've learned is that people just want to work with people that they like. And it's not nepotism, it's just common sense. Like if I know you and I know your quality of work and then I know that you're not a terrible being and then my like <laughs> friend is like, hey, do you know any like people of this specific thing who do this specific thing and I'll be like yes I'm going to recommend this specific person because I know that they're not a terrible person and hopefully they won't burn this bridge for me okay so one of the things that we want to talk about is that comedy classes are really expensive and a lot of institutions where you can get uh, your comedy degree here in LA you don't just take a class you take several levels of classes and then you might get into like an advanced program something like that 
and then you're taking more classes and then you can audition. And it's usually like, what, a two-year process, um, maybe less or more. Some places have such a long wait list that you are waiting for years to go through their program. And that adds up. Classes can be, uh, our classes are reasonably priced at $350 through rubyla.com. Wow, <laughs> that is reasonable. Reasonable price. Sometimes As of like, September of 2020. <laughs> if you're uh, listening yeah. to this anytime in the future, those prices are probably adjusted for inflation. Yes. Um, but some places, you know, their classes are more expensive and they're like $500 a class. I remember seeing a class recently that was $900 for a workshop. That price, it varies, but wherever you go. So I wanted to say probably, so at the Ruby, what we kind of work on is trying to keep the classes as low price as possible and to make it so that you don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to get on stage to be practicing your craft. And that's kind of how we try and solve this problem. But Jeff, could you restate essentially what you think the problem is? Comedy schools have this inherent preference towards like, you know, non-minorities just because of how prohibitively expensive it is. It's just hard because the there's no guarantee so the part of the reason why we see a certain type of person more represented in classes is because it's just more expensive how do you like how do you justify spending three thousand dollars on one thing so yeah and that's the problem that i have with it i know that there are diversity scholarships but it's still an issue Part of the debate for an actor is there's a million, when you get to LA, there's, there are every single friend has a different piece of advice on what you need to spend money on. So there are, let's say there's like 150 avenues in a, on a given year, in a given year that you can spend your money that someone has told you, this is what you have to do. So improv was experiencing this kind of, it was like a golden era really, where every casting director was looking for people who had improv on their resumes. That is is or not still true you know other people can weigh in on that but there there have been periods in which you were expected to primarily be a sketch performer because that's what casting directors really wanted and then you were primarily expected to be a stand-up because that's what casting directors really wanted or an improviser or now it seems i mean if you have influencing capabilities or experience that tends to be kind of you know the 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 golden ticket right now so as an actor you're trying to navigate what is the the hot thing right now that i should throw the most of my eggs which basket should i throw the most of my eggs at what's going to be the most likely yield for that investment you know the 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 thing that's going to yield the highest return because i can't do everything right right i just want to go back to that metaphor don't um collect eggs with ranby he's throwing all of the eggs at the basket so it's a soft basket (laughs) and just it's not like a wicker it's like a soft like a you know like a nylon neoprene type it sounds like a it sounds like a bag or or a basket what i'm from the midwest i don't know what you people call it (laughs) you people <laughs> the uh, Missourians. Missourians. Yeah, well, also, I would also classify myself as a Midwesterner, but mm-hmm. a lot of the Northern Midwesterners are fancy me as Southerner. And that is. Yeah, yeah we're from the Western Reserve area. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, I'm from Los Angeles, so I don't know what any of these places are that you're talking about. Oh, you coastal elite. So, uh, 
Uh, now joining us is Nick Armstrong. He's a part of the Improv Utopia and Rise Comedy. What, what exactly is Improv Utopia and Rise Comedy? Uh, improv Utopia is an improv retreat. It's a nonprofit improv retreat for it's around the world now. So we have generally we would have four camps and people come and do like a summer camp. Uh, they take classes, but they also um, get to do like archery and axe throwing and kayaking. And then like uh, in the money we kind of raise goes back to um, other charities and improv and things of that nature. Nice. Yeah. yeah Is that all ages? Uh, no, it's uh, for adults right oh. now. Uh, we were in the middle of uh, trying to figure out something for younger folks, but obviously pandemic times but <laughs> yeah but, but mostly uh it's all adults 21 and over now that's great um yeah. so today you're talking with us um jeff is one of our performers and also one of the board members operations director over at the ruby but he also does stuff for west side that's um, right yeah so you guys are, you guys know each other you're friends that's nice yeah we work together on a handful of things over the years but the west side comedy festival and you know obviously working at west side and doing projects here and there i like to imagine that i just said that you guys are friends and nick was like we work together <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we are not friends i just, <laughs> just clarify that right no, jeff top. and i go way back we've known each other for a very long time oh it's been nice. yeah it's a while yeah yeah and you're still talking that's great yeah. i hope I hope one day to <laughs> talk to Jeff again. Um, yeah, one of these days. <laughs> it's just good uh, to see humans, that's all. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, so true. Uh, okay, so today we're talking about comedy theaters, mostly comedy classes, and just about transparency, mostly, um, and how it is for an actor who has to take comedy classes. And we kind of talked a little bit about the Ruby and how we try and keep classes pretty low, but it also still is a deterrent for people who, um, you know, just can't afford to pay $350 for an eight-week class to, you know, end up on a team. So we kind of want to talk to you a little bit about what your thoughts on why these classes are important, if there's a solution to be had. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very complicated question because it's a, I always think of it as a ripple effect in a sense. Like, you know, the price you, how you price things out are dependent on your rent. <laughs> Like the yeah. where you are, I'm no longer with the West Side. I was the artistic director uh, from 2016 to the end of 2019, but I took oh. over Rise Comedy in uh, Denver, uh, Colorado, which I own now. I bought that in 2019 and kind of worked concurrently. Uh, so it kind of like been working on things there as well. And our our classes aren't three hundred and fifty dollars there. Yeah. For sure. um, but yeah, it is a ripple effect. Like I can be honest and upfront about West Side, my experience there. I don't own the West Side, but like they weren't making any money, you know, really. It was like a pretty break even uh, deal there. Um, obviously, they hired people to do jobs and things of that nature. And they did pay performers. <laughs> and producers here and there uh things of that nature but you know yeah in la you're talking ucb is like 450 the groundlings like i think i did the groundlings that was like 600 dollars for one of the levels i think if i recall um it's pretty expensive and i would imagine places like the groundling can prop groundlings can probably lower those prices but like you know i don't know the ripple effect like i said i don't know what the rent is what the because I think the industry as a whole needs to change and that ripple effect will be able to go down in a sense because 
we're held by these hierarchies of uh, systems uh, that make us have to do what is happening. So how do we break that? You know, what do we do? I will say that I would never say no to a student that said, hey, I don't have money, but I really want to do improv. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that's definitely something that like if someone came to me and said that I would not prevent them from figuring out a way for them to get into a class or do something. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is that part of it, but that just depends on the person in the theater. But at West side, we were pretty open to that kind of stuff. And so at rise, the price for the classes is lower than it was. So I think West side was like three twenty-five or something, maybe 300, 325, somewhere around there. And then at rise right now with online stuff, it's like one ninety nine. Uh, but we do tons of, you know, free classes for folks and things of that. Yeah. And sometimes we do classes that are specifically just free. Was your pricing, I, I wonder just what were the factors that went into that? Was it strictly rent? Was it looking at what else other people in Denver are charging? What, was it everything? Yeah, I think it, we take all of that into consideration. Um, how much we pay our uh, instructors. We like to take care of our artists that are teaching. Um, we also have a room to pay for because with Rise, we bought another classroom or rented a classroom space. So we had to factor in like what that costs for the time that we're using it because we're using it only really for classes. So we're not really... we're maybe storage and things like that. So we kind of factor those things into play. And then also like, it also deems like our theaters rental and stuff like that, because it all comes into play. Like we charge basically nothing for ticket prices, right? So the other places you have to bump up. If we tried to inch like other ones up to see if we can take other ones down, you know what I mean? Like if we can raise like ticket prices up, cause like we're mm-hmm. talking $10 tickets, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, we try to inch and do that, but like it just, you know, works we were still kind of experimenting before all this kind of happened. So we didn't really get a chance to kind of figure out that yet. So then we had to like reinvent the business and go online. So that was different. We were able to lower prices a little bit because of that, because, but we still have a room and theater to rent that we're not using. So it's just so really complicated, right? Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right now it is very, very complicated. It's the same for us where we're doing online classes, but we still have a whole building that we're renting that we can't use. So, you know, how do you price classes and don't have the admission from shows, which does help some helping you pay rent. So I think the major thing that you're talking about for comedy institutions is rental and paying a a staff. Just that's what your big costs are. And taxes, honestly, like taxes in California are way expensive and payroll tax too. You have to talk about you're not only paying your employees, you're paying payroll taxes on top of that. So it's nearly impossible. Like if you were to like at West Side, things like that, if you were to charge 200 for a class, they would lose money off the ground. And then they wouldn't be able to pay rent. So that's what I'm talking about, the ripple effect of like, of course, you know, that what's causing improv theaters to have to charge so much. And like, I will tell you, besides maybe Second City, I don't and I know most every improv theater in the country like you know that like not not a lot of them are making money the ones that do are doing it mostly from corporate gigs and things of that nature where they're making like real money right that stuff and that's another thing that you can do if you make in money from that you should be adjusting your other prices for artists right there's also that thought of like you know the people that can afford to do that it trip we can ripple effect to people that can't as well right. and try to tr- 
figure out a system to do that, like a sliding scale type thing. Right. So there's that. So it's it, possible solutions might be for theaters to investigate other revenue streams yes. that would offset the cost of classes or allow them to offset the cost of classes. Yeah. Yeah. There's no college for like owning an improv theater. Like I had to deal, <laughs> like Jeff will find this funny. I, I had to deal with the IRS and I told the guy, well, our business is a little different than most people's. And he's like laughed at me. And then he came and talked through some things with us and he goes, Oh, I don't understand this business at all. Yay! Um, and, they don't understand us. And and our and our landlord doesn't. And our right. no, it's yeah. so hard to explain our model because we've only been taught what IO and Second City and all those places have done. And that's what we learn. And we just keep doing it, right? We've never like stopped yeah. and said, is this the best way? Because normally who runs theaters are people that just are really organized. <laughs> right. <laughs> get bumped right. up into that position, you know, or like yeah. want to do it. Obviously, I, I want to do it. But like, you know, um, that's kind of how it starts a little bit. But so that's kind of the, I don't know, that's, that's the difficult thing about it. It's like... Uh, we got to rethink how that and what are other revenue streams that can help push things down in the way where, where it needs to be pushed down, you know? Yeah. So that's one way to look at it. And then, you know, cause you want these theaters around, you want these artists to have these outlets. I mean, I know I do not having this outlet all summer has completely made me a rusty actor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, I can feel yeah. it in my bones, you know, like it's just <laughs> not, it's, you know, it's definitely affected me. Well, and for me, um, just as from the other side, from an audience perspective, losing live theater, losing live performance in general, not just improv and comedy has, has been a deficit in my life. And I, I'm curious because I think that one issue that I see you, you touched on this a little bit um, with ticket prices, we have, all kind of allowed the market rate for tickets to be fair i would i would say pretty low for the value that it's providing and we only have so much control over that you know it's like i've done independent theater now for two decades and to a friend that i'm trying to get to see a show a $10 ticket is an easier sell than a $50 ticket, than a $200 ticket, even if I believe that the product that they're going to receive from that or the experience they're going to receive is, you know, worth $200. So it, I wonder, as we think about these type of things and think about other revenue streams, ways in which to maybe raise ticket prices, but to help the public understand or the public recognize the value of the arts. And obviously, that's a, a huge ask in general, but something to think about. I, I do think will be very essential coming back and hopefully there is a change in that i don't know but you're right i mean and i don't know how to do that i don't have enough money or <laughs> reach to <laughs> right. like, do something of that scale it needs to be like corporations or something going like hey we want to invest in arts which will never probably happen and it's just such like i just see as the improv Com and I would say comedy business because I do their stand up and uh, other things. It's like, you know, besides maybe Second City and the comedy store and places that are chains like that, I guess, there's really not a lot of money to be made in it. And that's okay. Like, I get in it not to make money, I do it because I love it, you know. And then there's a reward of a paycheck if I get hired to do something. But, like, you know, like maybe, maybe there's a limit to what this art form can do and make i don't know i've been thinking about this for 20 years of like you know and making camp and nonprofits 
and I made the improv network and things of those nature, like, you know, nonprofits that give back and put money back into other things. That's a way to do it and that we've done to build other programs and things like that and raise awareness. But it's such a small scale. And the thing about improv, it's so insular, like, you know, mm-hmm. the only, only we know what we're arguing about. <laughs> half the time like yeah you go to your friend and they're like oh my gosh you see what happened in the boston improv scene everybody's like there's this improv theater in boston (laughs) you know what i mean improv (laughs) but we see it because we're so in that bubble but outside of that bubble no one has any idea the struggles that improv is going through with inclusion things of that nature and that's just like uh, someone once told me if we just had a billionaire or a millionaire that wanted to invest in improv maybe our troubles would be go away we'd get a way to like have everybody do it for free or figure it out (laughs) yeah Yeah. on the topic of ticket prices i'm not sure if any of you have read the book freakonomics uh Mm -hmm. but it talks about issues with pricing and it uses like prostitution as and like sex work as an issue because if some if two people are providing the same service and you know usually the market is like uh it's 70 dollars for this service right and then somebody's like well i'll do it for 25 then that drops the value of all other work and the issue with improv is that people do free shows and if like a celebrity is going to randomly drop in on my free show and that's a high value thing and i'm charging nothing for it it devalues all of improv because somebody can be like yeah i went to the theater and like emo phillips just like walked in and like did a set uh for 15 minutes and i paid nothing for it and they gave me free alcohol which i think is illegal but that's okay like (laughs) they asked for a donation and like there was a they're like it suggested that you pay five dollars for this beer uh but like it's legal because uh they didn't charge me for it they just suggested Mm. that i paid and then wouldn't let me leave until i paid them uh so and tip but we we've devalued our work yeah uh which then has a ripple effect of theaters can't make enough money on ticket sales because people like ten dollars for a show that's still pricey and then they pay six thousand dollars to see uh hamilton uh from behind the wall Uh, (laughs) right right Uh, i think actors in general devalue all of our work when they do non-union commercials and things like that like it's a uh, companies devalue it too they don't see it as a you know they see they can get away with it because they use that they know our weakness Nick, I got $200 for a lifetime buyout. That's a steal. I got stolen from. They stole yeah, you, from did they give it to you as a $200 bill? Because I don't know if that's real. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice deal. Wow. But I think Jeff touched on something that's absolutely right. Like, we as we i wish improv had some sort of union or something to be like hey let's get on the same page here and let's try to help each other i i think the support of nature of improv should be that way but i don't know if the union's the answer but like something like that like but you're right we do like at west side we had free shows when i first got there nobody came the moment i put five dollars on it they sold out mm. it's a yeah. perception thing mm-hmm. it it's totally a, it's not, is it's a perception thing it's crazy yeah it's, it's it's you know we devalue that stuff but we also should be valuing our time and our effort and our work i mean especially in la like some of the top talent in the world are at these theaters you know yeah the best performers here yeah any theater you got this is where the best performers i would say in the world are you know so it should be valued yeah i know that when we um we went through different ups and downs of people being like it's the problem is that you're you're charging for shows and people shouldn't be paying for shows they should everything should be free and it's like well it's no 
<laughs> because once you say something is worth zero dollars, then the public sees it as worth zero dollars. Yeah, and right. there are so many places that already have the price tag of zero dollars on it. I think that the public knows about improv in that it is a usually makes it into a comedy writer's room um, on a sitcom or on any TV show as a punchline for a show, usually. Right. I don't know who it's for when when um, comedians, uh, comedy writers talk about improv schools as being a joke, but I see it like every show does one where it's like, oh, let's do an improv episode where we make fun of improv. <laughs> I'm always like, yep. who is this for? Right. Just the people who've done improv. Because I do think that people outside of our small group don't know what it is. Even though it's the most known, like it's more known than ever, because like you said, Lindsay, it's like everybody, every writer in a comedy has some sort of improv experience, like right. or showrunners even now. So like there is that kind of like, I want to say everybody, a, a very high percentage. And so we know that, but still like everybody outside doesn't get that. Or even when they talk about it, it's like, oh, well, they've heard of like second seater whose line it's still whose line whose line's been around for how many years and that's still the thing we have to like quote and that's okay i'm willing to do that to get someone to go and exactly know what i'm doing but like that one show is the thing that's like our bible like look at in the beginning there was whose line and then that was it (laughs) it is kind of fascinating because no one's like well you've seen tv right then you know what a play is like (laughs) right Right. <laughs> yeah. I like your idea though of, of going back to what you were saying about offering a lot of free classes. And I think that's a really great point. And that's something that a lot of institutions could be doing is offering free workshops, free classes as much as they can. Um, we do get into, like you said, the ripple effect of, okay, well, who's going to teach that class? How are they getting paid? That kind of stuff. But yeah, if you can figure it out, offering free classes to people is a great way to get more people involved who wouldn't be able to pay for class. Exactly. And, and, and Jeff would like this maybe, but like budgeting how you make money. So if you make money, and you go, well, here's a little profit. Well, let's use this profit to give free classes or like to give people free Mm -hmm. spot. It's just like, you know, because like, what do you, what's your end game to start seven theaters? I mean, I think we know that model doesn't work. Yeah. Like, like, you have to invest in your community. The theaters are run by usually improvisers or comedians, but it's without the performers in the community, your theater's nothing. You're there in service of your comics and your improvisers and your comedians in that community. And that should be your first priority no matter what. So yeah, if you make a little over the top, that should be reinvested into your theater and your community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, That's what community theater is all about. And I think improv is the new community theater if you think about it. it that's what it is. And if we just play that business model a little bit, then maybe that's what it is that we just invest in ourselves if we get something new it's for cameras it's to record our performers so they can get tapes right it's to do all these things in service of the people that come and spend their money with us or Or offering yeah or offering compensation yes those performers you know i think can we talk about that yes definitely can i don't think it's a secret to anybody who's ever done an improv class that there's been a huge discussion over the past you know several years about theaters taking advantage of their performers and you know as an owner of a theater i am absolutely including myself on that side of of that discussion i have both performed at theaters and not been compensated for them and i have owned a theater and you know have relied on performances from teams who are doing it out of goodwill and you know practice time and all the other reasons that we've 
established that it's it's okay to not pay for that service. As much as I am frustrated by the model that we've established that theaters shows should cost $5 and that's it, I am also as a performer frustrated by the model of you should be expected to perform for my theater and make me money. I'm going to charge tickets, you know, ticket prices for your performance and you will not receive any compensation for that yeah. performance. Well, as a person that's been doing it for over 20 years, I've never been paid for a <laughs> improv show, even yeah. as an owner. Um, so, but you're right. But stand-ups do. I tell you that yeah. much. They do. Because it's easier. There's one person, not eight. Yeah. So, like, that's also a, a hard thing. It's like, you know, some. I'll just kind of touch on this and I'll be very transparent of what I've done. So, and maybe it's wrong. I don't know. What I would do and what I started practicing in Denver was if you made a certain threshold of amount of people that came to your show and covered our cost, then you get the percentage of it over, even yeah. if you're an improv team. And then you split that however you want. That is up yeah. to you. <laughs> because I, I deal with producers, not teams. Yeah. So that producer, I pay out, they pay their folks. And that seemed to be working. We did that at West Side too. There was definitely like house teams never get paid, which I think is a, a weird, weird thing. But like, you know, there was definitely indie shows that would bring in a full crowd every every other week there was ones where they sold out all the time and it was only fair to give them a, a piece of that pie you know that's that's not fair to have sold out shows you know i did king 10 for so many years we sold out we probably made her a million dollars over the course of the 15 years of that show yeah we never got a dime you know so that's crazy. that stuff's crazy but i think there is a thing like if i cover my costs and maybe just a little bit over that then let's make a deal for what that is and if you get under that threshold then we just call it even you know because we do have to pay for the space and the, and stuff like that it almost becomes a rental and you can do rentals too, where it's like, hey, you want to rent it for this price? You do the tickets, you do it that way too. So there could be yeah. that method too. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but that's that's what I was experimenting with a little bit. Because yeah, I don't want improvisers to be paid. I'm an improviser. I want that to be a thing. Yeah, and usually it's like you have a show and it's an hour long and you have two teams. So you're not just, you don't have eight people, you have 16 people. Yep. And uh, so, and which team brought in more people or, or whatever, you know? that whole thing but we did the same thing where we told teams like hey you have 40 people in this audience like you're you can get a percentage of whatever we have here we just need to get ourselves paid um and it was it didn't happen it never happened so. right <laughs> but that's, that's something you got to think about and i think if you set those expectations before at least people know coming in that's the deal yeah, yeah. Instead of just going perform for me for free, go yes. yeah. thing. You'll get a an agent will come see you, and you're going to be a Hollywood star payment. Right. That's you know you'll get a copy. I hate you know. <laughs> like, you know, I was like, I better get a copy of the damn yeah. thing. Like that's my, yeah. you know. well, and I you know I had done. I remember doing a play here in L.A. that was you know that that's kind of the agreement is you do a, a 99 seat or under theater production here, you are lucky if they compensate you for gas money. You know, and there there have been different theaters now making different agreements. But um, in this instance, they had a set number of performances before they were going to be forced to compensate their actors. And basically, they just ran us right up until that number um, that and then closed the show. And so it was it was a, a moneymaker for the theater. They were doing super well. Every performance was sold out. It was very popular. But the second that the union rules would require them to start compensating actors that they had allowed to perform on waivers, 
numbers, then they they shut that production down because it was no longer economically viable for the the theater. And so I've been on both sides for sure. Um, and it's it is I have sympathy for every side of that argument. I want to find ways to improve that you know paths forward that that mean that people get fairly compensated for doing work well i think that we are finding out during all of this stuff going on that our system is way broken that Mm -hmm. meaning that the ripple ripple effect that unions that schools you can go anywhere in our society and go wow this is a hundred years old (laughs) we haven't (laughs) updated this in years we haven't like ah it's fine let's just keep doing what we're doing because we're more reactionary rather than preventative i think that like like what you're saying is like even like with our acting union this stuff they're so far behind they have screwed up so bad in so many places and got us bum deals that ripple effects down like any of i don't know what union specifically you're talking about randy but like you know my sag after unions definitely had some uh, uh some bad experiences in the last couple months and things of that nature and that that ripples to artists we're always going to get the crap end of a stick like it's just not we're always going to get used and abused because we take it and we let it happen yeah because there are always going to be actors that want to do it that will do it for free that will do that until we can stop that and get that power we're never going to be able to move forward i think yeah. Yeah. There's always somebody who's willing to do it for a little bit cheaper right behind. Exactly. You. That's the way Hollywood works. Jeff was talking about those prostitutes, sex workers. <laughs> we are so similar to sex workers. Like, first of all, <laughs> our parents are ashamed of us. <laughs> People delegitimize our work. Mm-hmm. The government gives us no protections, even though it protects all other workers. Like, everyone's like, oh, it's a, so beautiful what you do. It's so great. I wish I could do that. But then no one's willing to, like, talk about, like, the hardships of it. Like, acting work is sex work. Both should be legal. Both should be protected. And dab. I think I think I think politicians use more sex workers than they do in, go to improv theaters. But. Oh, I've been having sex with a lot of politicians <laughs> on improv stages, which is yeah. weird. Oh man! So if I am a theater owner and I'm listening to this, trying to figure out what I can do to help solve this problem. We've talked about a couple of different options. Um, We've talked about increasing, finding other revenue streams, doing Mm -hmm. sort of corporate workshops, finding people who will pay for your service. We talked about find a way to raise ticket prices or at least educate the public on the value of the service being more than it is right now. Um, Offering free classes, offering free workshops to people who might otherwise not be able to afford those. Anything else that I'm forgetting that we talked about as options. I think you're hitting on a lot of that. And I think it's just, uh, yeah, other revenue streams, uh, you know, looking outside the box. Now there's online stuff and that's going to be a hybrid from now on. You know, I don't think that's going away. It'll go, it won't be as, I think as heavy as it is now, but yeah. So there's, there's other sources that will be coming and, but who knows what's going to happen in the future? What other things can do but i think we should think about ourselves as community theaters yeah yeah community run theaters and that's yeah. we service our community first and the money mm-hmm. comes second meaning that we take care of with whatever money we get we take care of that goes back into our community yeah i love yeah. that yeah it's great um sorry if i've been distracting i'm literally nope. on an anthill and i've been crawling all over me this entire podcast <gasps> oh my that is like my nightmare <laughs> <laughs> so i'm just like trying to keep it cool off but like <laughs> you're on an anthill where are you it's like, I, it's, i'm out in the, i have a house out in the desert and the, oh. 
apparently are coming in and they are all like stationed right underneath my chair oh and my just gosh. crawling up. Uh. It's been a dream. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm recording live from an anthill in the middle of the desert. <laughs> With no AC on. Um, okay, cool. Well, uh, do, should we do, Nick, do you want to tell us any kind of where we can find you? Bugs? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Rise Comedy, we do a bunch of online stuff right now. We're trying to obviously keep ourselves afloat. Um, and that's been going on. And that's pretty much honestly it right now. I mean, not really doing shows or anything. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. RiseComedy.com. You could check stuff out there. And that's Great. in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But we have right. online classes at all times for everybody right now. Awesome. Uh, what about you, Jeff? What yeah, Jeff. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, I think Twitter is probably the funniest place to follow me. One like Jeff. Instagram, <laughs> I have one, but I forget. Like, I, I just don't take photos of things often. And Jeff, I'll, like, this is not a, a good plug. <laughs> okay, just follow me on Twitter. Or one like Jeff. <laughs> One, one black jet. I didn't ask you to tell me where not to follow you. Yeah, I'm bad. Marketing, I have a degree in marketing, but, you know, I'm bad at it. I got, like, a B's in a lot of classes. A B marketing student is still a marketing grad. Thank you, Nick, for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate these. These yeah, are great conversations that honestly need to be had, so I yeah. appreciate y'all doing it. Yeah. So I thought that was super interesting. It's it's always tough talking about issues that affect you directly in and in this case it's on many different sides. It's both as an actor and then as a theater owner. I really liked when Nick was speaking about solutions from a theater owner's standpoint because there are issues that you and I have dealt with in operating and running the Ruby and conversations that we've had just around different ways that we can offset the cost of our classes, you know, making sure that we're trying as best we can to keep that gate of entry as low as possible. Thanks so much for listening to The System is Broken. You can find us at the underscore Ruby underscore LA on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me, Lindsay Barrow, at Lindsay M. Barrow on most things. And where can we find you, Randy? I guess mostly active on Instagram. It's Rand Crafted. Or you can just go to our IMDb pages and click on those links several times to increase our star meter. IMDb.me slash Tom Holland. 